Okay, so there's this guy named Justin Claben, and I just want you to know he's not a coward. He's a successful partner of a successful firm in New Jersey. He rides motorcycles. He plays competitive rugby. He uh, fought fires for the New York Fire Department in New York City. In 2005, he even tried out for America's Cup bobsled team, hurling himself 90 miles an hour down an iced water slide in a little fiberglass sled, right? But uh, he has stopped flying airplanes. What happened to him? The answer is he uh, was there on September 11, 2001. Um, he was a first responder to the Twin Towers, and he personally watched and experienced them collapse. And that did it for him. He says, quote, I, I couldn't fly airplanes anymore. Flying is so many things combined, claustrophobia, the fear of heights, the fear of being out of control. Amanda Ripley, she's a senior writer for Time magazine, wrote a book called The Unthinkable, Who Survives Disaster uh, When It Strikes and Why? I thought that was a fascinating topic, and of course, I want to survive, so I read the book. <laughs> she says what got Claben was, are you ready for this? What got him? What got him? What got to the roots of exi his existence and shattered him and shook him so that he no longer can fly this outgoing, aggressive kind of person? The answer? Dread. Dread is fear on steroids. Quote, she says, Rarely does a word or a label used by scientists so aptly fit the emotion it describes as dread. Think of dread, she says, as humanity in a word. Humanity, you and me, in a word, she says, is dread. Paul Zoll, who has led the gospel movement in another tradition, whereas Tim Keller has led a gospel movement in our tradition. Paul Zoll, in his book, Who Will Deliver Us, says the problem of being a human is essentially a factor of fear. So let's get the other guy, right? Tim Keller, in a sermon on Romans 7, said fear is in the heart of of your being. It's in the heart of the human being. It is the controlling, dominating, driving, all-pervasive emotion of the human heart. So here we come to John 11. You know what John 11 is saying? John 11 is saying to you and me, we have failed to find an answer to fear. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We will read selected texts from this passage. Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
So the sisters went to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again, beginning at verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When Jesus, uh, when, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But most of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you speak us back to life again? Would you give word? Would you give power? Would you give clarity to the mind, realness to the heart? Oh, Holy Spirit, uh, breathe, blow, work, anoint, fill us all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have failed to find an answer to fear. The question is why? Why have we failed to find an answer to fear? John mentions death 11 times in the story. He mentions the tomb with its cave and its stone and its death clothes nine times in this story. In other words, this is a story about death. This is also a story about the fear of death. We didn't read it, and I didn't realize the significance of it until later in the week. But verses 8 through 16, uh, the disciples don't want to go to Lazarus' hometown. The question is why? Because it's two miles from Jerusalem. And what do we just know about Jerusalem? We just heard about it in the chapter earlier at the very end. At the end of that chapter, they were seeking to kill Jesus, all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And that's why in verse 8 it says, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. (laughs) And are you going there again? In other words, we don't want to die with you. They fear death. This is a story about death. This is a story about fearing death. All mixed up and mingled together, death and the fear of death. And just in case you're wondering, because you did read verse 16, you heard Thomas say what appears to be these courageous words, right? Where he's going, let us go and die with Jesus. Those aren't courageous words, they're actually sarcastic words. Thomas, nowhere in this John story, is a courageous person. So death and the fear of death are all mixed up together in this story. Why have we failed to find an answer to fear? The answer from John 11 and the answer from the whole Bible is because fear is the emotion of death. Fear is the emotion of death. And we have failed to find an answer to death. Therefore, we have failed to find an answer to fear. John records a historical story to show us that we failed to find the answer to the fear of death. Uh, The writer of Hebrews, though, tells us. So instead of showing us, he tells us. And he's rather blunt. He just says it. Hebrews 2.15, he says, Everyone through fear of death is constrained. Everyone through fear of death is constrained. He means everyone through the fear of death is imprisoned, is captured, enslaved. Everyone through fear of death is held captive to a lifelong slavery. Oh, do you see what he's doing? He's not only telling us straight up the origin of all fear, the sum of all fears, which is the fear of death. He's telling you that the spring from which all fears, the multi-form of fears that you experience in your life, if you want to go to the headwaters, if you want to go to the spring, if you want to go to the mother that conceives them all, the writer of Hebrews says, this is your human condition. You fear death 
Paranoia ultimately is a fear of death. Agra, fear of spiders, is ultimately a fear of death. Claustrophobia is ultimately a fear of death. Fear of heights ultimately is a fear of death. Fear of flying ultimately is a fear of death. The writers of Hebrews just bluntly just tells us, John gives you a story, a historical story to show you because sometimes we need to be told and sometimes we need to be shown. But he's also the writer of Hebrews diagnosing the fear of death as a present emotion in everyone's life right now. A present pain in your life right now. A present enslavement and imprisonment in your life right now. A present power, dark force in your life right now. In other words, he's saying the fear of death is an active emotional presence in your life. That means your emotional life right now. The fear of death is an active emotional presence in your mental health right now. Your inner thinking, your inner feeling, your inner willing. It's an active emotional presence in all your relationships right now, your marriage, your family, your parenting, your friendships, church, your athletic team, your book club, your classroom. It's actively present in your doing, your playing, and you're living. It's present consciously means you're aware of it. Subconsciously meaning you're not, but it's present. So the Bible says the fear of death is an active emotional presence in your life right now. This is why you are the way you are. This explains you Aren't you thankful that God does that? He loves you so much, he's like, listen, I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain you to you because part of your pain is you don't understand you, but I do because I know you down to the roots of your existence. And so I'm going to tell you over and over again in the scriptures, this explains And some of us are thinking, okay, I'm sorry, Jeff, but I don't go through my day fearing a future physical death. It's fair. It's really fair. I have a distant, distant, distant cousin named Travis Pastrana who seems to not as well. John, through this story of Lazarus, is saying to you, ah, if only death were that simple. If only death were a physical problem. If we think about it, though, we know it's more than a physical problem. 
If we did think about it, let's just think about it. We know that death is more than a physical problem because we suffer the death of a marriage. We suffer the death of relationships. We suffer the death of a career. We suffer the death of a great opportunity. Think about all of you that could have invested in Amazon or Apple. Don't. We suffer the death of our reputation. You suffer the death of someone's approval. Everybody has, right? Who's the person that won't talk to you now? We suffer the death of our hopes. We suffer the death of our dreams. We suffer the death of what we thought our life would be like. And then we suffer our mental health. We suffer our physical health, right? Sometimes we say things like, part of her died when such and such happened. It's part of our vocabulary. We know that death is more than just physical death. It's as if all these little deaths in our life, all these little deaths that we experience in our life, it's like they they touch a deeper death in our life. It's like they trigger and they touch a deeper death that's so much a part of us, it feels like us. This is what's happening in the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. The deeper death is being touched. The deeper death is being triggered through physical death. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill. There it is. There's the death that starts touching a deeper death. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So the sisters fire off a desperate note to Jesus. Verse 2, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You love him. Get your over here. Verse 4, this is where things get, I don't know how else to say it, they just get really weird. Look at verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. <laughs> what? I mean, we know Jesus is the truth, which means he's the smartest human being right now and forever that ever lived. This death does lead to Lazarus' death. So what in the world is he talking about? Then Jesus does it again when he's talking to Martha later on when now Lazarus is freshly dead. Verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What? <laughs> Come on, here we are again. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's like he's talking on two levels. At one level, you got this this image and this thing called physical death, but then at another level, it seems to be touching and triggering and going deeper into this deeper death. Jesus arrives in Lazarus' hometown four days after he dies. Martha hears about, she runs to him. She says to his face, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. And you know what the answer is? She's right. She's absolutely right. And so Jesus is now going to respond to her. And I love, I want you to see the two different responses. We have Martha the thinker. So Jesus is the truth teller to hear because that's the way she needs to hear. That's the way God made her. If you're a truth teller, it's because you were made that way. It's because God glorified himself because he's a truth teller and he made you that way. If you are Mary and you are a deep feeler and you think it's a curse, 
I want to tell you it's not a curse because Jesus is that way. So there are deep thinkers and there are deep feelers and Jesus knows how to talk to each one. Because he is each one, these are images of him. They're part of his glory. So right away, let's not deride thinkers and let's not deride deep feelers. Let's glory in them. Sometimes we need truth-telling. We need to be spoken back to life again, which is what Jesus does. He tells Martha the truth. Your brother will rise again. And Martha, because she's a truth-teller, and this is interesting, she calls Jesus the teacher. This is scandalous. Because you know what that means? That means that Martha and Mary are part of Jesus' disciples. No rabbi, no teacher in the ancient world had female disciples did not have female theologians, did not have female Bible scholars, did not have female Bible teachers. Jesus did. He is reversing this evil. So if you are concerned about women's issues, you should start with Jesus because he's the only one that reverses them. So Martha says to Jesus, I know, I know. She hears your brother will rise again. She goes, I know, I know. I know Lazarus will rise like everyone else at the general, the general resurrection of the dead. I know that, Jesus. You've taught me. That's Jewish theology. I get the general resurrection of the dead. That means at the end of the day, those who are God's people all will rise together. Every tear will end. Every evil will be gone. And you will live forever and ever in shalom or peace. She goes, I know about that. At the end, that will happen. But Jesus does something incredibly radical to her. He says to her, truth teller, again, Martha... I am the resurrection and the life. He just introduces a whole new theology to her, a whole new truth to her. He basically says to her, he's using the present tense. He's not using the future tense, not a future resurrection. He's talking about a present resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection right now. Here. In the present. And some of us are thinking, I'm sorry, but I don't go through my day fearing a future physical death. But Jesus is not talking about a future physical death. He's talking about a deep death that's present now. That's active in your life and every single human being in this room and on the planet right now. When we experience the death of a relationship, it's this deeper death that gets touched, triggered. When we experience the death of what we thought our life would be, it's this deeper death that gets touched, triggered. When we feel and experience the death of a loved one, it's this deeper death that gets touched, triggered. This deeper death in you and me is the sum of all your fears. What is it? Well, I'm, I'm not going to show you. I'm going to tell you. This deeper death is the death of your very being. It's the death of your very existence. 
It's you ceasing to exist. It's you becoming a non-being. It's you becoming a nothing. It's you not only ceasing to exist, not deserving to exist. It's becoming a nothing. It's becoming active worthlessness. It's becoming active unacceptability. It's becoming active wilting to death. It's becoming active self-diminishment, piece by piece, a decreative force that you literally fall to pieces until there's no piece of you left. This is what everybody fears. This is the sum of all fears. Even heroes, when they die and lay down their life, they believe, and it's the only way they can, that they will not cease to exist in fame and in the memory of those they lay down their life for. Theologians call it spiritual death, a seismic separation from God. I think the spiritual part like puts it in a category that's like, oh yeah, that's my spiritual life, that's not a big deal. No, this is the death of your very being. Your very existence ceases to exist. The Apostle Paul calls it the flesh or the edemic self, the sinful nature, the body of death. Other parts of the Bible call it divine accusation, call it divine judgment divine condemnation, call it the wrath of God, which is when you turn and separate yourself from God, life, love itself, you have now turned into an active negation of life, you decreate. It's called the wrath of God, the judgment of God condemnation of your very being. You fall to pieces psychologically or spiritually, relationally, socially, everything ultimately one day. So when you experience the judgment of another person, the deeper death and you just got touched. That's why it's so painful. When you experience the inner voice of self-accusation, the deeper death and you just got triggered. That's why it's so painful. This is why we have this desperate need to prove ourselves, to prove our worth, this desperate need to, to win approval, to prove our worth to ourselves, to justify our existence, but then to prove our worth to others so that they can justify our existence. When you live with the threat of ceasing to exist, the only way to battle that thing is to try to manage it. Paul Zoll, again in his book, Who Will Deliver Us, says, we live our lives under judgment, whether it is for wrongdoing in a conscious mode, like you're consciously aware you're doing wrongdoing, or the pervasive, irrational, multiform fear that we are worthless and no good, we live our lives under judgment. Why have we failed to find an answer to fear? Because we have failed to find an answer to the deeper death. We can't manage it. We try, but we can't. So Martha comes back. She just was talked to, told truth by Jesus. And she goes to Mary and she goes, Jesus is here. And Mary 
she's out the door and she's running to him. Jim Monroe has a friend who was in a painful place for a long period of time, and he tells this account of his friend who felt God's absence and during this painful period of time to such an extent that she felt he didn't care in, her, in his heart for her. She felt that her prayers fell on deaf ears, never made it out of the vibrations of her voice any higher than the air around her. Well, this period finally ends. And she emerges with a new sense of life and a new sense of purpose at the end out of this dark period. But one day she's praying and she has this vivid, vivid image while she's praying. Uh, it comes to her mind and it's this. She's standing on the banks of a, a beautiful river in a beautiful forest. And on the banks of this beautiful river in the middle of a beautiful forest, she suddenly sees a man and he's walking on the water. And as he draws near, she recognizes him. And he comes to stand right beside her. And she looks at Jesus for a minute and then finally says to him, where the hell have you been? Jesus, if you had been here, he would not have died. And she's right. Now when Mary came to Jesus and saw him, she fell at his feet, overcome with grief, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So why does Jesus delay? He has a very specific reason for why he does. Very specific. Um, in verse 5, we're told this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We are told from this text, the reason Jesus delayed for a very specific reason is because he loved them. Why does Jesus delay? Because he loved them. Why does Jesus delay in your life? Because he loves you. He delays so that Martha and Mary would know deep in their bones that Lazarus is dead. He delays in your life. There's one reason given here. Now, there could be many, and there are many other reasons. So don't just say, Jeff said, or the text said, this is why he's delaying, honey. And you say that to her your wife or to your child or to your spouse. You can't say it that it's because he loves you, definitely. But the account here is that he's delaying so that everyone gets that Lazarus is dead. There's a superstition that the, at the time that the spirit would hover around the body for two to three days. So this is not going to be a resuscitation. This is going to be a resurrection. So he waits four days. He wants everyone to know he's dead. He wants you to feel deep in your bones when he delays in your life things that are acutely painful. He wants you to feel deep in your bones that, that you are dead. That you have a deeper death in you that you can't manage. That all these pains and all these burdens are ultimately an echo of a, a brokenness in this world 
a dislocation in this world, a separation, a seismic separation in this world, a death beyond death in this world that you and I cannot manage. And it is loving for him to bring you to the point that you realize that deep in your bones. Why have we failed to find an answer to fear? Answer, because we failed to manage the deeper death. Jesus loves you enough to show this to you. He tells it to you in the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. So if you want to avoid the experience, listen to what he's saying. (laughs) But we all know that we can be told and told and told and told that most of the times we have to be shown. And so he's going to make it real in your experience. Now, this is going to carry over into next week and the weeks after when we start talking about the mystery of life change because some of us don't are dislocated about what just was said, and we're going to pick that up. So now is a good time to tell God. Right now, I mean, we could do it right now. Now is a good time to tell God, tell yourself, and to tell anyone around you to be able to say to him right now, Oh, God, my will has failed me. I cannot manage fears, and I cannot manage the deeper death. That is freeing. Jesus sees Mary weeping at his feet because of death. He looks around him, the whole town, and everyone, a lot of people from Jerusalem, because it's only two miles away, These are a substantial family. This is a wealthy family. This is an influential family. That's why all these people from Jerusalem are coming too. And he sees Mary at his feet weeping. He looks around. He sees the whole town weeping. He takes in every tear. He takes in every sad detail. He takes in every broken, fallen fear. And what happens next is the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus suffers with Mary. Jesus suffers with you. So all amidst the deeper death and all the fears it generates in your life and all the ruin and misery that it brings and all the enslavements and entrapments and all the multi-forms of self-imprisonment that come with it, he weeps with you. He bears your burden. He participates in your ruin. He takes it all in. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Deeply moved is not suffering with you now. Now he's gone to the tomb. So he, with you he suffers. But now he's turned his, his focus on the enemy. And this is not suffering with you anymore. This deeply moved is not suffering for us. This deeply moved is a deep rage. It's a deep roar. It's actually used in the ancient world, the word for a war horse, when a war horse is snorting as it faces its enemy, ready out of hostility, ready out of rage, ready to trample the enemy to death. When Jesus turns towards the tomb, he says, he roared.
roars like a lion. My favorite old school theologian, a guy named John Calvin, says Jesus, when he comes to death, he doesn't come like a spectator. He comes like a gladiator. What happens next changes everything. Mary hears a command that like reached all the way back to the beginning of the world. It's never been heard before on the face of the planet. She hears the command of a champion, Lazarus, come out. Oh, and he does. Just like light, he obeys. The dead man, the dead man, the text says, comes out. Later in chapter 12, Mary fully understands how Lazarus can rise from the dead. She fully understands how the deeper death in her, the deeper death in you and me, the deeper death in every human being is destroyed. She fully understands in chapter 12. We're not going to get to it, but it's a sneak preview is given in verse 2. She fully understands how Jesus is the resurrection and the life now in the present, actively present, actively the resurrection and the life amidst your terrors, your fears, and all its multi-forms of the deeper death that goes on in your life, amidst the actual reality of the deeper death that's inside of all of us. She gets it. Sneak preview, verse 12. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Mary anointed Jesus, why? For his burial. For his death. She is the first person on the planet to get that Jesus must die. She's the first theologian of the church. She knew that Jesus' death is Jesus being judged to death. Jesus being condemned in the very roots of his existence to death. Jesus becoming a non-being. Jesus becoming a nothing. Jesus ceasing to exist, not deserving to exist, Jesus becoming unworthiness and no good to end the deeper death in you. To raise you from the dead. She knows that Jesus is becoming the sum of all our fears to set us free from the sum of all our fears. So Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? That's the question of the whole text. That's the question that's being asked you and me. That's the question that's being asked the reader. That's the question that's being asked us today and tomorrow. Jesus turns to us and he says to you, do you believe this? Do you believe I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe what I've just said about you and the sum of all your fears? If you do, you have an answer to your fear. And you have an end to your deeper death. 
And then Jesus' final words in the story are your final words. Jesus' final words of telling truth but then showing you are this. Unbind you and let you go.